Welcome to Three Right Turns. I have a great topic I want to talk about this week, the subject of what it means to be white. But before we get to that, I just want to say thank you to everyone that took the time to go to patreon.com slash swizzbold and pledge to support us. If you're one of those new patrons, you should be getting some emails this week about our first Patreon live stream event and how to participate in said event, which is happening next week, Wednesday evening on February 12th. You also get information on how to get your subreddit flares and any other perks you qualify for. If you enjoy three right turns and see these podcasts have value, please consider being a Patreon at patreon.com slash swizzbold. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. The sentence I just said is the infamous 14 words, one of the most famous slogans for white nationalists, at least in North America. And maybe you've never heard of it, but once you know about it, you'll start seeing it everywhere. You see a gamer tag with a 1488 in it? That's a Nazi. See a Twitter tag with 1488? Also a Nazi. 14 for the 14 words, 88 for the 8th letter of the alphabet H, HH equals Heil Hitler. These modern racists have a lot of ways to signal to each other who and what they are. But if you've not seen it around, then I kind of envy you because I miss mean you've got good family, you've got good friends, and your hobbies and interests don't attract a lot of racist attention. Like, unfortunately, some of mine do, like video games. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. I imagine there might be people in the audience thinking, I don't get it. What's so bad about wanting a future for white children? Black lives matter. Don't white lives matter? Why is it wrong to advocate for white people? We have problems too. It's okay to be white, Aaron. I've been wanting to find a way to talk about race on this podcast since its inception because America's racial history and makeup is one of the most fascinating things I've ever dug into. If you've heard any of the Bald Move podcasts where we touch on the topic, I think you can kind of tell it's something I have a lot of passion for. I'm not sure which has given me greater peace of mind in my adult life, coming to an accurate understanding of race in America or sex. They're kind of like neck and neck, but they've both been game changers. So much of what we struggle with today in terms of equality, in terms of unity, were baked into the fabric of the United States. I mean, when we studied the Constitution in civics class in high school, I was given a copy of the U.S. Constitution. It's actually a, a very brief document. I don't know if, uh, hell, a lot of Americans might know this. I don't know if any of the uh, our, our foreign listeners know, but it's, it's this very brief, incredibly brief document. It easily fits into a very small pamphlet. You can just tuck it in your shirt pocket. Indeed, it's, it's kind of a power move. I've seen it a couple of times in the last years. Uh, in American politics to pull it out of said pocket and start waving it around, demanding if your opponent has even read the fucking thing. And I think every American definitely should. Why not? It's 4,500 words. It'll take about 30 minutes if you take your time. Anyway, my copy of the Constitution I got as a 16-year-old was one that had the original text with strike lines through it where the verbiage had been superseded by later amendments. And you've got some kind of hilarious strikethroughs, like the entirety of the 18th Amendment, which of course prohibited the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors. This undone by the 21st Amendment, which states, the 18th Article of Amendment to the Constitution of the United States is hereby repealed. But there were other less 
funny strike throughs, like the infamous three fifths compromise, where for the purposes of representation in Congress, the population of free men and indentured servants would be counted for each individual. Native Americans would not be counted or taxed at all, and all others would count as three-fifths of a person. All others in this case were slaves imported from Africa and their descendants. Some ugly stuff, all struck through courtesy of the 13th Amendment, which abolished the practice of slavery, except as punishment of a crime. Now, that latter exception is kind of a doozy, and I hope we can circle back to that sometime in the future. But how do we get from a country where black people counted as fractional human beings for purposes of calculating political power to a country where some of my fellow white people fret about how best to secure the future existence of white people and a future for white children? Are white people under attack? Is our existence in jeopardy? A lot of the times when I see this discussion being had, it's from the perspective of a very highly educated person attempting to explain to a white audience the racial problems in America from a very informed and academic perspective. And to a skeptical white audience, the first time they hear something that doesn't jive with their personal experience, they just tune out. Maybe it's an unfamiliar academic term that has a different colloquial usage, like the word racism. Maybe it's a lack of nuance when terms like phobia, hate, and racism are thrown around. Maybe it's just a natural defensiveness that comes up whenever anyone is criticized about anything. At the end of today's podcast, we're going to talk about an example of this explanation kind of going awry. So I'm going to try a different tack. I have no formal education on race. I've never been through a course of race studies. What I did do is grow up in a cornfield in Indiana, and that's the position from which I'm going to talk about the concept of whiteness. After all, if there is a concept of whiteness that must be defended, we should be able to describe what whiteness is. What does whiteness mean? What is white culture? I hail from a town that is 99.7% white, so I'd like the court of this podcast to recognize me as an expert in the subject of whiteness. Before we go on, please remember that the primary intended audience for this podcast are white conservatives, centrists, and moderates, so I hope the woke crowd will give me just a little leeway to talk about whiteness and the ways being white has evolved and changed over the years before we get on to more pressing 21st century concerns. But if you feel like I got anything wrong here or feel like I can phrase things better, by all means, let me know at three right turns at swizzbull.com. All right. What does it mean to be white? What does it mean to be white? What are we as white people worried about losing when we talk about protecting our culture? What do we want to protect? What I hear from a lot of white people who are concerned about this white identity being attacked is that white culture, which gets lumped into Western culture, which often gets reduced to European culture. I mean, we invented democracy. You're welcome. White culture is the culture of Greeks and of Romans, of high-minded ideals of classical architecture and art. It's King Leonidas, it's Aristotle, it's Plato, it's Socrates, it's Aquinas, Descartes, Hume, Galileo, Newton, Locke, Kant, Nietzsche, Hegel, Freud. White culture invented the printing press. White culture brought literacy, technology, medicine, trains, electricity, and oftentimes freedom to black and brown people. White culture invented vaccines. White culture split the atom. White culture put us on the moon. 
There must be something very special and distinctive about being white and the culture white people have created for so many important achievements to be credited to our race. And I I think it's pretty easy and, and, and obvious for someone to construct such a narrative, because at least in America, the way our education on world history works is it emphasizes the ways that European peoples have interfaced with the world. It's, it's kind of interesting watching my son go through this right now because I did it 30 years ago. Now he's going through it. He's attending middle school in southwestern Ohio, just for reference. Uh, might be better in some places, might be worse in others. But you start off with world history with a brief discussion of prehistory uh, featuring Mesopotamia as, of course, the cradle, cradle of civilization. Uh, then you skip a bit and you get a long unit of Greek history where he got to build models of Greek warships. Uh You get an even longer unit of Roman history where he got to dress up as the Roman god of war, Mars, and he recited an essay about Roman religious practices. Then he's learning how all that fell apart and uh, for a few hundred years uh, kind of muddled along until the Italians, the Spanish, the French, and English all got their act together, rediscovered some texts from antiquity, jump-started modern civilization, and launched the age of exploration where they discovered the Americas and began colonizing it. What's the difference between Aztec, Mayans, Incans? What were they doing before the explorers came? What was their culture and civilization like? He can't really tell you. I don't know that I could tell you off the top of my head, but he can tell you how many oars a Greek trimene used in their warships. I found that Africa is treated in much the same way. I think the only thing he knows about Africa is Carthago de Linda Est. Excuse my Latin. Which, of course, is how the Roman politician Cato would finish each and every one of his public addresses. Carthage must be destroyed. He only really learns about the very northern tip of the African iceberg, maybe a little bit of ancient Egypt. But essentially, it's just, again, how that continent has interfaced with Western civilization. And it's very similar to how he's going to learn about Asian cultures. It's going to be all Marco Polo and Silk and Spice Roads and trade and, again, how that part of the world and its people related to Europeans. What did Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, Japanese cultures look like in prehistory? How did they interact with each other? What were their wars and struggles like? What peoples make up China? Were any indigenous peoples displaced? How did the Polynesians launch their age of exploration, where they colonized every island in the Pacific Ocean? Do you know how vast the Pacific Ocean is? Next time you're around the globe, rotate that thing so you can just see like the west coast of America and the east coast of Australia and the north coast of Antarctica. And I might have flipped those directions around. I think you can figure it out. It's fully half the goddamn globe. What an amazing undertaking that I know next to nothing about. But I know all the names of Columbus three rickety ass ships that he barely made it to the Americas in one piece. He's studying algebra now. Does he know that that's an Arabic word? Did you? This method of education on history, with its slight bias towards Europe and European peoples and how they interface with the world and how the world interacted back, gives us a false idea of the dominance of European innovation and thought. It allows guys like Stephen King, representative of the great state of Iowa, birthplace of Captain James T. Kirk, respect. It allows guys like him to say on national TV back in 2016, I'd ask you to go back through history and figure out where are these contributions that have been made by these other categories of people that you're talking about? Where did any other subgroup of people contribute more to civilization? Western civilization itself is rooted in Western Europe, 
Eastern Europe and the United States of America and every place where the footprint of Christianity has settled on the world. That's Western civilization. Is, is this white culture? Is Representative King speaking from some place of informed reason and study? I don't think so, but it sounds good, especially if, like many of us, you stopped learning about history in high school because you think, oh, you know, I did learn about those Greeks and Romans and uh, democracy, and I saw 300 and King Leonidas, you know, he's the free guys and he's fighting against the slave empire. It, it makes sense. But you ask any historian, and it's a really absurd way to look at the past. The Greeks didn't see themselves as one united people. They fought and squabbled constantly. Athenians had some things in common with their Spartan counterparts, sure. But the way they organized their societies were along completely different lines. And they're always talking shit about each other. Rome conquered Greece and appropriated a lot of their culture and religion, fusing with their own. Romans did not consider themselves the same as the people that they conquered in modern-day Spain, France, and England. They considered these people barbarians. The name barbarian came from them making fun of people who didn't speak Latin and Greek because the harsh Germanic and Celtic languages just sounded like animal noises to them. Bar, 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 bar. Barbarian is literally an ancient racist joke about supposedly white people mocking the culture, language, and race of other supposedly white people. So we as Americans learn about other races and cultures by how they interacted with us. And what a distorted image that that leads us. Imagine how much you know about your family. You probably know about your mom, your dad, your aunts and uncles, grandmothers and grandfathers. Maybe if you're lucky, you got to know your great grandparents and some great aunts and great uncles. Maybe you know all about the colorful characters in your family. Who are the real assholes, the black sheep of the family, as well as the sturdy pillars that your family relied on when they needed to. Let's say you called someone on the phone and conducted business with them several times over the course of a few weeks. Maybe they work at the cable company and you're arranging a cable installation or you're calling around trying to get someone to come out and look at your plumbing. You call them three or four times. Did you get to know about their family? Even if you made an effort to do that, asked about it, really showed an interest and curiosity, there's really no way you get to know them as actual people. You wouldn't know that, I don't know, their, their uncle is the chief of their local fire department. And he is goaded annually by his nieces and nephews to do a cannonball so hellacious it empties half the water out of the pool. And he wouldn't know about how their grandpa always comes out and throws a fit about it and how the whole family laughs because it's just such a damn performance and it happens every year. You wouldn't know how about how they would gather around the bonfire a few times each year and their camping chairs, 20, 15 people around it, kids running around everywhere, the adults drinking beer and throwing the empty bottles in the fire. And you wouldn't know about how on the following morning, one of the other uncles would fish the resultant molten slag out of the pit with a pitchfork and hold it up and, and everybody would laugh and praise yet another fantastic piece of redneck artwork. You know, I'm filling in the details of my own family, if you, if you didn't catch on. Because I guess when I think about white culture, I guess that's where my mind goes to, what my people get up to in their spare time. But that white culture, rural Indiana white culture, it doesn't look at all like white culture in the Hamptons. It doesn't look like white culture in Southern California or white culture in Philadelphia. It does look a little bit like white culture in rural Alabama, it shares some important similarities to white culture in Minnesota, but there's also some important differences. It doesn't look at all like white culture in Vermont. I know this guy who's a cousin of John Hickenlooper, 
the former governor of Colorado, he's famous for signing into law the legalization of, of, of weed. Not not my friend, uh, the, the, the cousin, John Hickenlooper. Recently, he was one of the 97 other people running for the Democratic nomination for president. I've gone out to dinner with uh, this guy several times. Again, not John Hickenlooper, but I, I got to meet his brothers and their family, and they can trace their family history way back to like the American Revolution. And they have like a running joke in the family about the battle prowess of a certain Hickenlooper and the Battle of Shiloh in the Civil War. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Hickenlooper. Look him up. He's on Wikipedia. I've got a real nice article. And I think that's that's really neat to have that kind of heritage in your family told down through the generations. But, you know, I think about the people that listen to this podcast a lot and what they're thinking as I'm saying things. And maybe you can't relate to this part of the podcast because, I don't know, you're adopted. Maybe you're estranged from your family. Maybe when you hear stuff like this, you have this little bit of longing because, man, it sounds kind of nice to know where you came from in like this big picture kind of way. How did my family impact my area of the world? Where did I come from? What's expected of me? What does that say about what I'm capable of? Myself, I have a bit of both types of history in my own family history. On my mom's side, the family joke is our genetic makeup is a little bit of dog from every town. Just a hodgepodge of German and Polish and Dutch and maybe a little bit of Native American, you know, Elizabeth Warren style. Nobody knows, nobody cares. But on my dad's side, it's a little bit more interesting. And I know a lot about it because my great aunt was way into genealogy. My great grandfather was a first generation German immigrant. He came in very late in the wave of German immigration in the 19th century. It's actually hard to go back further than that to find out what my ancestors were doing in the old country, though. I know roughly the the province, or I'm not sure if they're called states back then in Germany, but I know roughly the area that we came from. But, but the fact is that my great-grandpa was a poorly educated German peasant that came to this country looking for a better life. Birth records are hard to come by. The guys running Ellis Island were often sloppy with their paperwork and didn't check spellings or get birthdays right. And a lot of immigrants played fast and loose with their names anyway, changing them to sound uh, or to spell more English. Why would they do that? Well, I'll tell you. About 8 million Germans came to America between 1820 and 1880. That's to say nothing of the Dutch, Italians, and Irish coming at roughly the same time. Holy shit! What an invasion. And let me tell you, Americans, not at all happy about it. These dirty, diseased, unskilled, and uneducated waves of foreigners, you know, my people, were causing a lot of problems. They crowded together in these filthy, rundown enclaves and cities. They took jobs away from hardworking Americans. They talked gibberish. Their religion, Catholicism, was strange. Their food and customs, off-putting and weird. The crime rate soared, and my fair city of Cincinnati, a hotbed of German immigration. The crime rate tripled between 1846 and 1853. The murder rate rose sevenfold. It was a full-blown crisis. And worse, these German people had the temerity to start their own newspapers in schools. They refused to assimilate. I mean, you've seen the gangs of New York, I'm sure. And if not... You should definitely make the time to watch it because it'll be a new experience after you've heard this podcast. There arose in America a movement of Native Americans. Not Indians, not not those Native Americans, of course. You know, real Native Americans. Descendants of the first colonists coming to America. And these people were up in arms and they were pissed. This white culture formed of uh, these original settlers, these Protestant settlers... 
alleged that all these migrants coming from majority Catholic lands were setting up secret Romanist conspiracies to corrupt and subvert the good Protestants of the land. They get their marching orders straight from Rome, you see. They're going to vote in blocks and say goodbye to good old-fashioned traditional American values. White culture was under attack. If something wasn't done, well, the noble white race would be no more. Now, Aaron, you might say, what the hell? Everyone in this story is white. What are you talking about? Well, as I'm about to demonstrate, white culture in America did not see things that way. In response, white Americans organized resistance both on the streets and in arenas of politics, and things got weird in places. Parties arose that became known as the Know-Nothing Parties because these organizations of anti-Catholic and anti-immigration influences met in secret and formed clubs and societies. They were trained to say, I know nothing about their involvement in an organization and party. One of the most prominent voices in the Know Nothing movement was Louis Charles Levin. Levin came to the heavily Irish Catholic neighborhood of Kingsington in Philadelphia in 1844 as a 35-year-old and warned of the tide of Catholics coming to take the jobs of hard-working native Protestants, the white culture of the time, which would have dire consequences on American liberty if more were allowed to come. A race riot started, and in the following week, Levin supporters had set fire to 30 homes in the area, had burnt down two Catholic churches to the ground. Seven people were killed. John Perry wrote in his book a full and complete account of the late awful riots in Philadelphia. I love the extreme literalism of these old titles back then, by the way. He wrote, The sights presented were truly sickening. Men with their wives and often six or seven children trudging fearfully through the streets, seeking a refuge they knew not where, carrying away from their homes whatever they could pick up at that instant. Louis Charles Levin did not accept any of the blame for this. Instead, he proclaimed his peaceful intentions and blamed an armed body of ferocious foreigners for starting the violence. He blamed the press for not covering the victims on his side and a Catholic conspiracy that was a real motivator behind all the violence. But it wasn't Protestant homes that got burnt down. It wasn't Protestant churches that were set aflame. It wasn't Protestants lying dead in the street. Now, the kicker, this Levin guy, this proud native-born American, he was a first-generation immigrant. Also, America's first Jewish congressman. Isn't that bananas? I wonder what the spiritual successor to the know-nothing secret organizations, like, I don't know, the Ku Klux Klan... Would they have considered him a white American in good standing if he materialized in that party generations later? Would he be allowed to lead any modern American first movement? I doubt it. So what is white culture? It's starting to look like a damn shell game, that's what. Entire schools of pseudoscience were created in the late 19th century to explain how various races were inferior to the whites of England and America. I'm going to include in the show notes uh, one of the most amazing pictures I've ever seen. I first saw it about seven years ago when I started really diving into race relations for the first time. It's from an illustration from the 1889 book by H. Strickland Constable, Ireland from One or Two Neglected Points of View. It illustrates how the author saw the skull shapes of the Irishman and the Negro as being similar and distinct from the noble Anglo-Teutonic skull shape, claiming that the Irish originally descended from the Africans, you see, and thus isolated on Ireland were destined not to be shaped by the quote-unquote healthy struggles of life, and thus destined to make way for the superior races. In parts of late 19th century America, people of Irish descent were not considered white, Because, you know, their skull shape. 
Would anybody make that claim today? Well, why not? Let's talk about that. I'm a, a fourth or maybe fifth generation German immigrant. I'm honestly not quite sure. Uh, I'm fully assimilated into white America. My ancestors faced severe cultural and religious discrimination. They huddled together in German enclaves for safety and security for economic reasons. As I said, they founded many German schools. They started many German newspapers, started many German towns and settlements. Our podcast studio here is based out of an old mid-19th century German Catholic orphanage here in Cincinnati. It's a very beautiful building, but it was built to take care of German kids who lost their parents in a cholera outbreak that swept the Queen City back in the 1830s because nobody else would take them in. The Germans took it upon themselves to do so. And through hard work and determination, the immigrant story as always, these German immigrants to America managed to fairly well integrate into their new society. But German culture stood pretty distinct in most places from American culture. Their kids continued to learn German in German schools, and German was spoken in our churches. And things went pretty well until World War I. In World War I, things got really ugly for German-Americans. These old racist ideas about the Germans and the Catholics and their ignorance and their disease and uh, all these other des undesirable qualities of them were only just in our rearview mirror. And now the Americans were fighting a bitter and devastating war against the Germans, who were popularly portrayed as Huns. You know, bar 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 barbarians. I'm also including in the show notes a propaganda poster from World War I depicting a German soldier as a savage black ape. Teeth bared in a defiant roar, clutching a bloody primitive club in one hand with a naked white lady in the other. If you remove the spiky top helmet, those little goofy German World War I helmets, you could easily mistake this as just modern, straight-up anti-black racism. It's insane. But back then, Germans weren't culturally white. German nationals living in America were automatically classified as enemy aliens at this time. Any German-born immigrant in America older than 14 had to register with the government and carry his registration card at all times. Thousands of German-Americans were rounded up and placed in internment camps at Fort Douglas, Utah, and Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. Under intense public pressure and waves of mob violence, German schools and newspapers were forced to close. Half of my family anglicized their last names to avoid the persecution. My grandfather spoke fluent German as a child because he went to German school. My father didn't speak it at all, outside the odd curse word or two, and I can no more sprechen sie Deutsch than I can stand on my head. My distinct and beautiful German heritage was completely destroyed in just a generation. But something amazing happened. My family became unambiguously, uncontroversially, universally accepted as white. We could go to war with Germany tomorrow, and no one would ever know that I'm a German-American unless I told them. No one would know that I was a potential sleeper agent for the fatherland. No one can take away my whiteness. It doesn't matter that my great-grandfather came over shoeless, illiterate, jobless, potentially disease-ridden. Nobody's going to call me an ape and tell me to get my schnitzel-loving hands off their daughter, because I'm super white. It's the great racial and cultural cloaking device. The Romulan Empire's got nothing on me. I can roll my happy ass into Oktoberfest, kick back a Steiner three, stumble outside, and everything's cool because my cloaking device is re-engaged and I'm white. There are no black people outside protesting that fucking German-American white people get festivals all over the country and no one bats an eye, but every year when the taste of soul rolls into Cincinnati, always white folks on r slash Cincinnati to bitch and moan about it. But you know, 
I'm white, so that means I can take pride in my German heritage. And it's not weird or strange or threatening. I'm a huge fan of Oktoberfest. I love it. I also kind of get a kick out of imagining my descendants giving Roman legions a good ass whooping from time to time. I can take as much or as little from my heritage as I want because nobody would ever give me shit about it because I'm white. I mean, I would get a little shit, obviously, for picking up some, let's say, mid 20th century German cultural norms, but nobody would ever look in, at me and think, I bet he's German. I wonder if he's a Nazi. So my partner over at Bald Move, producer of the show, an Italian-American of some pedigree, but you'd never know it because he's white. It doesn't matter that his dad looks and sounds like a capo from Godfather. Nobody's ever going to call him a greasy goomba or tell him to get his guinea ass away from their daughter because he doesn't get out in the sun much and he's got that accent-free Midwestern dialect, so he's white. Louis C.K., one quarter Hispanic, doesn't matter because he's white. Malcolm Gladwell of Historical Revisionist Podcast is half black. Did you know that Malcolm Gladwell is half black? But he's got kind of white skin and people read that fro as Jewish, so he's white. Blake Griffin, NBA star. Oh, man, he's actually still black, but he's so close. His kids, well, he married a white lady and those kids, I I looked them up on Instagram and they can be as white as they want to be. Remember our friend from the last episode, Josh Trevino, the Republican operative and original founder of RedState.com, currently working at various think tanks defending traditional American culture? Half Hispanic. Nicholas Fuentes is a white nationalist and rising star on the alt-right. He's rabidly against immigration, especially from Central and South America. But his his last name kind of gives it away, right? He's half Hispanic. But he's got straight hair and light skin, so he's all white. Remember those 14 words? We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. They were invented to keep guys like Nick Fuentes from existing. And now he's out there on Twitter and YouTube trying to get an American First Party going. A modern day know-nothing. MTV just ran a special on him. I don't think I've ever seen a sympathetic interview in a mainstream source with a black nationalist. Not ever. But I've seen like 10 think pieces on how to understand the motivations and fears of white nationalists in like the last three years alone. What is white culture? I think it's looking like a scam. There's German culture. There's Italian culture. There's Irish culture. There's French culture. There's poor white Southern culture and rich white Silicon Valley culture. And I won't be the first to point out that like poor white Southern culture shares a lot in common with poor black Southern culture. But I defy anyone to tell me what just plain old white culture is. Let's think back to my illustration of what we know about our families. Remember when I said there's probably people in the audience listening that maybe they're adopted or otherwise they can't trace their family lineage. They don't know where they came from. And I can imagine that there might be this longing to know. Uh, the sense of history and where you're at, where you're going, what came before you, how uh, those that came before you impacted and contributed to the society and how you can fit into this larger narrative. Most black folk can never look further back in their history than when their ancestors stepped off the slave ships and they first set foot in the Americas. And I don't want to generalize. Black people are not some monolith that all think and act the same way. Some black folk probably never even think about it kind of like my mother's side of the family. But imagine there are some that do know a bit and they're proud of what they do know. Maybe they got a badass grandpa that was a Tuskegee Airman or maybe some served the Union in the Civil War. 
Maybe there are those out there that can trace their history back to when their great-great-great-grandpa served in the American Revolution. Maybe that's how they first won their freedom. How awesome would knowing that be about your family? I think I derive a lot of pride in something like that. The same kind of pride that the Hickenlooper family feels about Andrew Hickenlooper. But beyond that, what nation, what culture they came from, that's in most cases lost forever. And I imagine that hurts. I've always been a big fan of rap music. Rap metal country, I'm a triple threat. I remember back in 2003 when the artist Naz came out with the song, I Can. It was written as an anthem for young black kids, encouraging them to stay in school and stay drug free. The first time I listened to it, I kind of got choked up because of how moving I thought it was. And there's this verse where he recounts his understanding of black history. Before we came to this country, we were kings and queens, never porch monkeys. There was empires in Africa called Kush, Timbuktu, where every race came to get books to learn from black teachers who taught Greeks and Romans, Asians, Arabs, and gave them gold. When gold was converted to money, it all changed. Money then became empowerment for Europeans. They heard about the gold, the teachings, and everything sacred. Africa was almost robbed naked. Slavery is money, so they began making slave ships. He ends that verse with, Ghetto children, do your thing. Hold your head up, little man. You're a king. I think that's a fantastic song. It's pretty catchy, too. Wrapped over a sample of Beethoven's Fur Elise. There's that Western culture contribution. And I thought, man, what an amazing message for young kids, especially ones who've been beaten down and, and told they're worthless by society. Hold your head up, little man. You're a king. But... I've also seen racists on the internet make fun of this kind of line of thought. They like to share memes that juxtapose Africans standing in front of mud huts or wearing loincloths, uh, juxtaposed with slogans like, we was Kangs, like there aren't gleaming modern, magnificent cities in Africa today. I mean, Jesus Christ, maybe Naz is playing a little fast and loose with literal historical fact, because I've looked into the hypothesis that some pre-Hellenistic Egyptian dynasties were made up of black people, and it kind of seems shaky. But on the other hand, how many of you have heard of Mansa Musa, a 13th century ruler of the wealthy and powerful West African empire of Mali? While Europeans were shitting in ditches, he was at the time the wealthiest man in the world. And I'd literally never heard of this guy until Killer Mike referenced him in a Run the Jewels track. My point is, what Naz is rapping here is at least as true as the idea that white culture spans all the way back to ancient Greek and Rome, or that the only people who made significant contributions to the world are from European descent. And the very people mocking black children, holding their heads up high, taking pride in the fact that they descend from wealth and nobility, are the same ones claiming pride in statues they didn't carve, buildings they didn't architect, democracies they didn't establish, and philosophies they didn't write. They just sit back, complacent, declaring, we was Romans. So here's a final thought about white culture. And I wonder how many people will agree with me here. White culture is killing white people. On the last podcast, I made a passing reference to an article I read in The Lancet. Uh, one of the most respected peer-reviewed medical journals in the world. It's written by one Dr. Rhea Boyd and was talking about a book, Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland by Jonathan Metzl. He's a professor at Vanderbilt. In the beginning of the book, Metzl shares an interview with a man called Trevor, a 41-year-old white man from Tennessee who's dying from liver cancer and who is adamantly opposed to the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. 
He quotes this man Trevor saying, Ain't no way I would ever support Obamacare or support it. I'd rather die. We don't need any more government in our lives. And in any case, no way I want my tax dollars paying for Mexicans or welfare queens. Part of the scam of whiteness in America is that this concept of whiteness must be defended. We saw it with the Germans and Italians and Irish immigrants coming. If other groups get ahead, white Americans must be falling behind. To be white in America too often for too many people, it means that they have to block the advancement of other groups. And like these other times in our history, maybe white people are finding it tough, especially in the bottom and middle segments of the economic order. But just like before, it's not the fault of the non-white people. Unfortunately, it's also just a lot harder for black and brown people to engage that old cloaking device. It's not as easy as losing an accent or changing a last name. I was first made aware of this book through a tweet by Dr. Boyd. A Swizzbold listener linked me to her Twitter thread. Dr. Boyd was highlighting a few passages from her Lancet article that was discussing this, the findings of the book, uh, Dying of Whiteness, and adding facts and figures in her own analysis uh, she started the tweet saying, despair isn't killing white Americans. The armed defense of structural whiteness is. The solution, end whiteness. Whoa, end whiteness? That's super fucking crazy racist, right? How do you end whiteness without rounding up, displacing, replacing, or killing white people? There's this growing undercurrent of fear in American politics right now. Uh, it's not big. I don't want to overplay its significance, but it's growing. Uh, these white nationalists have coined it white genocide. The idea is that whites are being systematically targeted for elimination through immigration policy uh, and the encouragement of race mixing, and that once whites become a minority in their own quote-unquote country, America, while well, us white people will be in for the same shit we put minorities through for years, it's going to be open season on white people. So you have this black intellectual, Dr. Boyd, using her platform on the respected medical journal, The Lancet, calling for an end of whiteness. The mask has slipped. The game has been revealed. The white genocide theory is true. This first introductory tweet was shared through the reactionary right Twitter sphere, and she was called racist and worse by just thousands and thousands of people. I think less than a day later, she made her Twitter profile private to hide from the abuse. But I ask, was she really calling for white genocide? Her final tweet in a long and informative and well-researched and sourced Twitter thread was the solution, and the solution she's speaking of here is the much-talked-about white resentment and despair that we've, we've heard a lot about in recent years. The solution is not self-reflection. It's not having a difficult conversation. It's not centering things on white emotions, however distressing. The solution is those who can become white must summon the courage to unbecome white and then to eliminate whiteness altogether. I don't know. Maybe Dr. Boyd is a black nationalist. Maybe she's a black supremacist. They, they exist. They don't have a lot of political power or, or even attention right now. But maybe she's using the Lancet as their unmasking party. Maybe she does want to literally eliminate white people. But I would suggest that what Dr. Boyd is talking about when she says the end whiteness is about this shell game, this ahistorical concept, this great cloaking device that is whiteness. She's asking people to not use their cloaking device to stockpile benefits and privileges for themselves. And when that fails, show white solidarity in blocking minorities from receiving programs that not only benefit and help their advancement, but the advancement and liberty of white people as well. 
I agree with her. It's literally killing us. Voting against a program to get you free or reduced cost healthcare while you as a poor white person are literally dying like Trevor and the example above because you don't want a black or brown person to get that same service. It's insanity. This is the whiteness that I think she's advocating for ending. And again, I ask, what is white culture? What about white culture is worth preserving? That's not the same as asking about German, Italian, Polish culture, which we can and we currently are preserving in some form or fashion throughout America. And American culture will continue to grow and expand through the same process that gave us blue jeans, bluegrass, the blues, rock and roll, Korean tacos. The know-nothings were wrong back in the day. The Klan was wrong back in the day. The segregationists were wrong back in the day. The modern-day alt-right is wrong. The process of unity, understanding, and sharing is working. What does it mean to be white? As it stands, it merely means possessing skin white enough, enough to engage that cultural cloaking device. So I stand with Dr. Boyd in calling for the end of it. And if you're worried about becoming a minority as a white person in America, I have a suggestion. Work to make our laws and the systems in this country fair for minorities. Make sure minorities have fair representation in society. Make sure those things are in place right now so when and if we do become a minority, we'll be treated with dignity and respect, regardless of our skin tone or what culture we ascribe to. That's the only true way to secure the Star Trek utopian future that we call for on this podcast for all people and for all children. Now, some of you might be saying at this point, well, what the hell, Aaron? We, we had the Civil Rights Act. How are things not fair for minorities right now? Things might have been bad in the past. What with this three-fifths thing and slavery and Jim Crow? But we're all good now. Well, I got a future episode that I can't wait to discuss with you. Maybe it'll even be next time. But that's it for Three Right Turns this week. I'll be back with some more radical ideas from the leftmost pane of the Overton window in just two weeks. Next week on Swizzbold, Cecily and I will be back on One Weird Trick to share more ideas and advice for a successful, healthy, and happy life in this 21st century. Please send your feedback on this podcast to 3RT, the number 3RT at Swizzbold.com. You can also join our growing conversation on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Swizzbold. Follow along with us on all social medias at Swizzbold. You can also follow me on Twitter at AaronHubbardBM. Uh, I will say that Jim's going to be reaching out to people who have stepped forward about interviews and collaborations starting this week. So if you were one of those that's reached out and you haven't heard from us by the end of, uh, let's let's say the, the next time the Three Bright Turns rolls around, uh, maybe reach out again. We get a lot of feedback. Sometimes we overlook things. And until next time, remember, we was all kings. We was all Romans. Because we is all of us human. And one of these days, we're all going to get there. Special thanks goes out to our Fred-level patrons, Kira Grusciao and Angelo Marano. We greatly appreciate your faith in and support of our project here at Swizzbold, and we couldn't do it without you. Hope to hear from all my Freds and Tigers next week on our first live stream. Until then, love you all and have a great week. 